I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Last week we began our study in the book of Proverbs, and it's a, a book about which a man who is probably the greatest living evangelical Old Testament scholar said this, in a world bombarded by inane cliches, trivial catchwords, and godless sound bites, the expression of true wisdom is in short supply today. The church stands alone as the receptacle and repository of the inspired traditions that carry a mandate for a holy life from ancient sages, the greatest of whom was Solomon, and from the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. As the course and bulk of biblical wisdom, the book of Proverbs remains the model of curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. As a result, it beckons the church to diligent study and application. But he says, tragically, the church has practically discarded the book of Proverbs. Of its 930 ancient sayings, many Christians know three. To fear the Lord, to trust Him with all their heart, and to train their children in the way they should go, and possibly something about the virtuous wife. However, he says to fear the Lord is misunderstood, to trust him is a platitude divorced from the book. The promise that a child will not depart from childhood rearing raises more questions than solutions, and the poem about the virtuous wife seems out of date. <laughs> For some honest readers, as one student confessed, Proverbs seems banal and wrong. I mean, it's obvious that, quote, a truthful witness gives honest testimony or does not deceive, and gives the Lord delight. And sober theologians, for them, the book's heavenly promises of health and wealth and prosperity are, are troublesome. And for many saints, they seemed detached from the world's harsh realities. Some proverbs seem to contradict one another. Answer a fool according to his folly is followed by don't answer a fool according to his folly. As I mentioned last week, for the logical mind, this book seems to be a hodgepodge collection, having no rhyme or reason in its grouping of sayings. They jump from one topic to another, like scatterbrains in a living room conversation. So how do we preach and teach from this kind of structure? And for the modern mind, the book's cultural setting seems far removed from the 21st century. For example, Proverbs puts a high priority on tradition and age, while the modern mind prizes change in youth. Proverbs admonishes parents not to spare the rod, but the state's welfare workers want to jail those who obey it. Now we'll address all of those issues as we proceed through this book in the months ahead. But for now, since it's true that Proverbs is the model of curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind, and as a result, it beckons the church to diligent study and application. Then I invite your attention to what the Lord tells us in this book of wisdom. Now that issue that I mentioned last week and then again just a bit ago, that Proverbs seems to have no particular structure to it. That's only an apparent, not real, issue. And that's because Proverbs is a collection of separate collections of wisdom material. They were then brought together over time. And there are seven of those collections in Proverbs that later became the book that we have in our hands. We have those for you on the screen. 
think. There's an introduction, and then what we, in chapter 10, we will start what we normally think of as Proverbs, these short sayings. And as I mentioned, there are 930 of those throughout the book. And then we've got several chapters of those from Solomon, but then there's a couple of sections that are called the sayings of the wise, and then additional sayings of the wise, then more Proverbs of Solomon, and then the uh, sayings of Agur, and then the sayings of King Lemuel. And so we'll be seeing all of those. Now, we are obviously in the introduction, and we will be for some time as that goes all the way up to chapter 10. So this introduction to Proverbs is nine chapters long, chapters one through nine. And chapters 1 through 9 have 10 lectures in them. 10 lessons from a father to a son. And then they also, these nine chapters, have two interludes. So you've got a total of 12 lessons in these nine chapters. And those 12 lessons are urging young people, but by extension, all of us, to accept the father's teaching in order to escape the typical pitfalls that we are tempted toward. As I've said many times over the years, wisdom is the best teacher, especially if it's somebody else's, or excuse me, experience is the best teacher, especially if it's someone else's experience. And other people have already done it, so you don't have to do it to find out. The time to learn is before you have to make the choice. And so this book provides that for us. Let's bow now and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you for gathering us now, giving us this collection of divine wisdom. We thank you for giving us your servant Solomon and then the others that brought these collections to us and that you have preserved them for us in our day to instruct us. Lord, I pray for our young people that they will listen with attentive ears and heed what is said. But all of us, need to hear what you say to us about how wisdom takes place in your world. Help us to learn from it, and as a result, be better equipped to serve you and represent you in an accurate way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first of these 12 lessons on wisdom begins in verse 8, chapter 1. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, we have an outline for you every week. Those of you that are uh, here on site, you could have picked that up on the way in by the main doors. Those of you that are watching by live stream, you can press the outline button below or next to your media player. But I say, first of all, that wisdom requires submission. In order to learn, you have to assume you need what someone else has. Arrogance is the perennial obstacle to education of any type, including education in life lessons, because the one who thinks he already knows has no need to learn from somebody else. And youth carries with it sinful arrogance. We've all experienced it. As we grow older, we realize what we were, and now we're trying to tell that to those who are going through the same kind of temptation that we did. Only if one has an attitude of submission will they gain the wisdom they need. And so I say in the outline that this attitude of submission causes one to heed. 
The, the lesson that begins in verse 8 starts with the word listen. And we're going to see this in a, num a number of times in the other lessons over the next few weeks. The student has to willingly place himself under the instruction of the teacher, not just having a seat in front of him, but having a heart that desires to hear from him. Now the setting, you see, is a, a father and a mother. The setting is a home. But of course, the pedagogical model can be applied to a classroom or a church or any other, any other number of settings where someone has a message that those present need. As we'll see, the teacher's message is not simply do this because I told you so. Now the truth is that should be enough to cause a learner to apply what's said, assuming the teacher is one who can be trusted, but learning is not primarily a, a matter of power and position, but of persuasion. People don't learn simply because somebody in power or position said, primarily, but rather because they are persuaded. And that's why the relationship between the student and the teacher is so important, especially when it involves the most important issues of life. You see, friends, education and schooling are not identical. Schooling involves a, a formal structure where, hopefully, education takes place. But not all education requires such stru structure, and, in fact, on some of life's most important issues, those lessons are learned in the relationship that the teacher has to the student and especially children to their parents. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 6 famously says this, these commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Now notice, talk about them in these informal settings when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Some of the most important lessons I was able to impart to our girls as well as some of the most precious times we still talk about were, we, were when we were in the car together. We had opportunity to talk about life and about applying God's truth to what was happening in their lives. And the student is told in verse 8, do not forsake this teaching. It means to leave something unattended or uncared for. The student who will become wise not only listens but what he hears is not in one ear and out the other. He or she applies what they hear. Now, some of you did not have spiritual parenting growing up. And some who did, did not heed that instruction. The great news is, God has given you a spiritual family in His church. Some of you parents are concerned that you're behind in your, your teaching. These lessons will help you teach your children. But I encourage you to take advantage of our entrusted curriculum, which we're going to resume later this year when we're able to get back, to get back together on a regular basis. So wisdom requires submission. That submission causes one to heed, and I say in the outline, it causes one to gain. Verse 9 says, They are a garland to grace your head, and a chain to adorn your neck. Now when it says they, that goes back to verse 8. It's the instruction and the teaching of verse 8 that become visible in one's life. 
In fact, the English translation of verse 9 has omitted a word at the very beginning, the word for or because. So verse 8, listen to your father's instruction. Listen to your mother's teaching. And then verse 9, for because they, that instruction and that teaching, are a garland to grace your head, a chain to adorn your neck. Verse 9 then is telling us why one should heed, why one should obey. Yes, you should do it because I'm telling you to, but I'm also adding why it's going to help you. You're going to benefit from this. It's for your benefit. Now, the garland on the head refers to a victor's wreath at the end of a contest. It's likened to a, a glorious crown in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 9. It says, she will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. And then the chain around the neck is not just bling, but it's a metaphor for a mark of prestige. You could think of an Olympic, an Olympic medal. It's saying this, that wise children wear, and wise students wear their teacher's lessons like a necklace. It can be seen, and it can be admired. Archaeologists have found two silver pieces of jewelry with the words from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26 on them, that's that famous benediction. In fact, I used it just last week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Many of you know that. So they found these pieces of, of jewelry that were to be hung around the neck from the 7th century B.C. It's a prominent advertisement that this verse is saying that if one puts into practice these lessons, it'll be like that. They'll see them in your life like you can see this necklace, these pieces of jewelry. It's a prominent advertisement like a wedding band as a defense against temptation. That is, friends, the more you advertise what you are, and if what you advertise is that you are wise before the Lord, the less those going another way are going to waste their time on you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the way that goes. I've actually seen that. You know, people who are, who are going to go and do things that are contrary to the Lord's will, and they decide who it is they're going to invite, they know who not to invite. Because those people have make it, made it clear, I don't want to be a part of that. But we're going to see, everybody's going to get their invitation. Everybody's going to get their opportunity. It's a matter of what you do with it. And so wearing this, wearing this in terms of your behavior, putting into practice what you hear from the wisdom of the Lord through his servants, teachers, and parents. And the Bible speaks of that need to adorn ourselves with truth and with wisdom and with righteousness and holiness in several places. Romans chapter 13, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of people. Let me just stop momentarily to say, friends, it matters what the world thinks about you. You don't do what you do to conform to the world. Of course, that's completely contrary to what God says. Do not be conformed to this world. We don't do what we do to be conformed to this world, but we are mindful of what the world thinks. We want to represent the Lord accurately. So we make decisions that are in line with that. 
We're not only taking pains to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of people as well. Paul says elsewhere, let your gentleness be evident to all. That word gentleness has been translated as sweet reasonableness. Let your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. I'm just going to ask this rhetorically, move on. You all think this past year has shown Christians showing sweet reasonableness? Evident to all? This is talking about an attractive life to those who look, to those who look in the community. Wisdom requires submission, and I say in the outline, it recognizes sin. It requires submission, recognizes sin. Verse 10, my son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. As you demonstrate wisdom in your life, you'll refuse fewer invitations from those who are not, and you'll, and you'll receive fewer invitations, as I said earlier. You'll get those who are not just going their own way eventually, but until then, and even after, Satan will still try. When it says in verse 10, sinful men, you may think that means simply everybody, if you think about it, because everybody's sinful. But it's referring to habitual, chronic sinners, people who are regularly up to no good. Wisdom recognizes sin. And it does so a couple of ways. It sees its contradiction. Someone who has been taught what God says about God's way And the book of Proverbs speaks regularly about two ways of life, the way of the wise, the way of the foolish, God's way and everything else. And people who have been taught in God's way learn the ability to recognize everything that is contrary to it. And so they see the contradiction. It's contrary to God's way. Those taught in God's way of life will be confronted with the contrary way. All of us have been and will be. And so verse 11 says... If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood, let's ambush some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave and and whole, like those who go down to the pit. (laughs) So here we, we come to now the beginning of the meat of the content of the first lesson in Proverbs. And you may find yourself a little bit disappointed when you read those two verses. I mean, here we are, jazzed to hear pearls of wisdom from the ultimate wise guy in Solomon. And the first thing he says is basically, hey, don't join a gang. (laughs) And you might be thinking, really, that's it? Don't join a gang? I mean, when was the last time you were actually asked to join a gang? That might be a clear and present danger for some people, but not for most of us. And how many of us have been solicited recently to participate in a murder? By the way, don't raise your hands on that. The truth is probably nobody. So how does this help us? How does that that apply to us? Well, look down in verse 19. Verse 19 is the last verse in this section, in this lesson. And it broadens the relevance of the message. Verse 19 says, such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. 
This applies to what we read in verses 11 and 12 and what we'll read after that and is summarized now in verse 19, applies to everyone who is, as some translations say, greedy for unjust gain. They go after ill-gotten gain. So it's not just people who join gangs. What those in verse 19 and those in verses 11 and 12 have in common is that they gain by stepping on someone else. This includes doing so for money, of course, but we might do that for many other reasons as well. At its very core, ill-gotten gain succeeds by stepping on someone else. And along the way, we all meet people like this. If we're not careful, we become people like this. Self-centered, narcissistic, backstabbing. Success for us at the expense of someone else. Now I'm going to list, give you a, a number of illustrations of that from a bunch of different settings, from big political things to just stuff that happens in everyday life. Bullies at school fit into this category. And if somebody is, and we know the effects, there's been a lot written about and action taken on, the effects of someone being regularly bullied. Bullies at school are like this. They're getting ahead at the expense of someone else. They're stepping on someone else for their own benefit. I started at a new school in eighth grade. And the first week I was there, didn't know anyone except those I'd met those first couple of days. And one of the guys was coming after me, making fun of the new kid. And had that been left alone, who knows what would have happened. It happened that my locker, alphabetically, brown, was right next to C.A. Carrico. And Rich knew this guy because Rich had been at the school for several years. And now Pastor Rich stepped in. I've often looked back on that. And by the way, the, the other guy, the would-be bully, some of you would know him. I won't mention his name here. And we're very good friends. But what would have happened if that had just continued and someone had not stepped in? Now, Rich is, Pastor Rich uh, is now Pastor Rich. That was my reward for him for defending me in eighth grade. <laughs> not really. But bullies at school an example. Using someone else to get ahead yourself. Computer hackers stealing others' identity and money. Wall Street insiders exploiting the system for their own gain. Political good old boys neglecting their constituents but looking out for themselves. Terrorists plotting and murdering to create their own ideal world. Class-motivated revolutionaries taking their revenge on the privileged wealthy to punish historic wrongs. Racists treating others as non-persons who just don't count and can be disposed of or held down forever. Politicians saying whatever they need to in order to give people what they want to hear even though they know it's false and harmful. You have Mao's China, Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, Pol Pot's Cambodia and others, what we call the murderous modern state. 
neighbors who need bad things to be true of someone else in order to justify themselves, gossiping that person's reputation to death. Intellectuals who approve of the use of murder by those with whom they sympathize, but not others. Somehow they rationalize that. Office politics, bringing the CEO down, or faculty bringing the dean down, or teachers bringing the principal down. A faction splitting a church, and it only takes one person to get it going. Many legal, polite, agreeable, even religious ways of saying what verse 11 says. Come, let's lie in wait, let's ambush. I actually experienced this about 25 years ago in a church setting. And we had some leaders in the church that we were in at the time, our parent church, who had done this very thing. Lie in wait, ambush, came to a meeting, ready to resign in mass in order to pay, do a power play over the church. It's some of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life. God moved in, a, in a, an amazing way to foil that plan and to save that church. It was that dire. And not only to save that church, but to save my ministry. This church is here today, and I have had the grace of God to pastor this church because God intervened on something like that. It's real. Now, the test for us is this, then. Do we try to do this kind of thing to get ahead ourselves in whatever ways that I've listed there and many, many more? Here's the test. Are we happy when others succeed? Or are we only happy when others get their comeuppance? One has said this, there is no vice of which a man can be guilty, no meanness, no shabbiness, no unkindness, which excites so much indignation among its contemporaries, friends and neighbors, as his success. This is the one unpardonable crime. The man who writes as we cannot write, who speaks as we cannot speak, labors as we cannot labor, thrives as we cannot thrive, has accumulated on his own person all the offenses of which a man can be guilty down with him. Envy and resentment are what is at the base of this. And envy and resentment inside is where sinful action against others moves outside. Wisdom recognizes sin. It sees its contradiction and it sees its motivation. Verse 13. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will all share the loot. Yes, the motivation of gaining the object, whether money or promotion or just the evil satisfaction of seeing someone else struggle, there is that, but there's also just the thrill of being part of the group. The plan is, come join us, let's lie in wait, let's ambush, this is what we'll have. Verses 13 and 14 tell us what we will get. And yes, there are those tangible things but very often, it's just the thrill of being part of a group, even if it's a negative criminal group, even if it's a negative sinful group. Throw in your lot among us, says verse 14. But the invitation back in verse 11, come along with us, let's lie in wait, let's ambush, and the community now in verses 13 and 14 are connected. Notice, we will get. Cast your lot with us, we will all share. 
You see, friends, sin tends to recruit. We say misery loves company, but it's also true that those who want to make others miserable want company in that pursuit. And so if you're intent on doing this, getting ahead at the expense of others in whatever way, you'll want to get others on your side. Even at the Bible study. Even disguised as a prayer request. Hey, will, will you just pray with me? I'm, I'm having a problem. And then you disclose, and then there's this problem with this other person. And what you're doing is gossiping in the form of a prayer request. One has said this, a cause, even a negative cause, provides a group to belong to. It's one way we nurse our grudges and it feels good, but whenever we gather around grievance rather than Jesus, it's counterfeit community. Wisdom requires submission. Wisdom recognizes sin, and I say in your outline, it refuses sin. Now please look at verse 10 again. The first line, verse 10, my son, if sinful men entice you, that first line is explained in verses 11 through 14. Now the second line of verse 10, but do not give in to them, that's explained in verses 15 through 18. Do not give in to the invitation of temptation because, I say, wisdom sees its consequence. Verse 15, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. Or in the title of today's message, at the top of your outline, don't go there. Don't just try a little of what they're offering. Don't just think I'll go a little way with it. Don't let curiosity get the best of you. You don't need student. You don't need son or daughter. You don't need the experiential knowledge of evil. The word of those who have experienced it should be warning enough. The word of God himself was not warning enough in the garden. Remember that. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve determined, yes, we need to have that ourselves. If you're to be wise, the word of the Lord and the wisdom that he imparts from others will need to suffice for you. Verse 16. For, because... Don't do this, don't go there, don't set your foot on that path because their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. Now it says their feet are swift to shed blood. In Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah chapter 59, it's said this way, their feet rush into sin, they are swift to shed, but notice I have highlighted for you there, it says innocent blood. And in our verse, in verse 16, it's not innocent blood. Innocence not found in verse 16, probably because those who get involved with groups intent on harming others end up also harming themselves. The student must reject the company of sinners because it will result in the shedding of his own blood. Listen. The guy who's willing to kill others is willing to kill you, right? The guy who throws others under the bus will put you there too, right? The gossip who tells you things about others will tell others things about you, right? Wisdom refuses sin because it sees its consequence and. 
It sees its stupidity. <laughs> Verse 17. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. Instead of spreading the net where every bird can see it, fowlers, that is those who try to trap birds, they sneak up on them from behind. And that's because it's pointless to throw a net toward a flying creature since God has given that creature the good sense to avoid it. But these sinners who call you to join them have put their net right where you can see where it's leading. So son, daughter, student, don't go. Like every bird, the wise person will take flight because they've spread their net in full view. They're foolish enough to just play by the same playbook. And I've told you what it is. There it is. Verse 18. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. In verse 11 now, back in verse 11, they said, let's lie in wait. But let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. But now this is saying they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. And they ambush not the harmless soul, but their guilty souls. What it's telling you is this. Sin backfires. Sin is stupid. We say insanity is doing the same thing over and over but expecting a different result. Satan is insane. Same thing, over and over. That's why the Bible can say we are not ignorant of his devices. We know what he does. He's done it over and over. So you can learn from, from that pattern, but Satan himself is insane. He keeps doing the same thing over and over, and so are we insane when we follow him. He knows the end, but he keeps on trying. Back in our study of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, we have the thousand-year kingdom. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom, Satan has been bound for that entire thousand years, but toward the end, he is loosed for a short season, the Bible says. What does he do? <laughs> he falls on his knees before the Lord and repents, right? Goes back, does the same Friends, we've been told the end of the path of sin and therefore the wise will not put their foot on it. And so for the wise, rather than live and learn, that's what we say, live and learn. Learn by your experience. I would suggest to you, minimize the live and learn approach. <laughs> minimize the approach that learns from your own bad experience. Learn from the bad experience of other people. Rather than live and learn, here's your take-home truth. The wise learn and live. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, again we thank you for allowing us this privilege to be here with your word to learn wisdom from you. Help me. Help us to take these words of wisdom to heart. Take them with us this afternoon, this week, and thereby be better equipped to glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.